Good morning from the Financial Times. Today is Wednesday, June 2nd, and this is your FT News Briefing. The former head of Apollo Global Management, Leon Black, is being sued for rape and harassment. And oil prices are up as OPEC continues to gradually release more crude into the market. We'll look at why Germans have fallen a little out of love with their country's Green Party. Plus, the African nation of Djibouti wants to be the new Singapore. Djibouti's main asset is its location. This is a choke point where about a third of the world's maritime trade passes through. So both location and stability. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. A lawsuit is claiming that Leon Black, the former chief of Apollo Global Management, raped and sexually harassed a Russian model. The complaint was filed yesterday and alleges Black then manipulated the woman with promises of money and sham job interviews at Goldman Sachs. The lawsuit comes weeks after Black stepped down as Apollo's CEO amid scrutiny of his ties to the late pedophile Jeffrey Epstein. A spokesperson for Black said his relationship with the Russian woman was wholly consensual and called the lawsuit nothing more than wholesale fiction. We've been talking about a future where there's less demand for oil. But for now, oil prices are up on expectations of more demand. Yesterday, Brent crude reached its highest price since the beginning of the pandemic. This was after OPEC and its allies agreed to stick to a plan of gradually releasing more barrels into the market. Here's our senior energy correspondent, Angelia Raval. Markets at the moment are focused on the recovery post-COVID. And this is largely a short-term sort of focus that people are having. Angeli posed a long-term question to Saudi Arabia's oil minister at yesterday's OPEC press conference. She asked him what he thought of the International Energy Agency's warning about the need to restrict investment in new oil production to keep global warming in check. And he responded by saying, this is like some kind of sequel to La La Land. You know, he talked about how these were not realistic scenarios, and he just didn't think it was worth paying attention to this roadmap from the IEA. So all of this goes to show how far apart producer companies and countries are. If you're a major producer like Saudi Arabia, where all you see is huge demand for your product, it's very difficult to then say, okay, well, we're going to just stop investing. And in fact, he went out of his way to say that actually Saudi Arabia, as the world's largest exporter, is only going to increase its production capacity. Now, Saudi Arabia, like a lot of producers in the Middle East, only really have to answer to their major shareholders, i.e. the government, They're not under the same kind of pressures that BP and Shell are under. And so they see this as a massive opportunity to step in when others are under pressure to basically stop investing. That's the FT senior energy correspondent, Anjali Raval. Germany's Green Party has been on a historic roll. For the first time, the environment-oriented party has been proving popular enough with Germans have an actual shot at leading the country. But as Angela Merkel's tenure as chancellor comes to an end and the September election nears, 
the Greens' luster is fading. Our Berlin correspondent Erica Solomon reports that party leaders have proposed some things that don't sit well with Germans, and the party's also made some missteps. The big one is that Annalena Baerbach, the, the chancellor candidate for the Greens, didn't report some of her income to the Bundestag. She did report it to another tax authority, but not them. And then a newspaper here found out about it and it became a big scandal. There are some others though that I think do lead back to your question about, is there a tension here between the types of policies the Greens want to lead Germany toward and what Germans really want? So one example of that would be um, obviously the Greens are really trying to cut back on carbon emissions. And one way that they really want to try and do that is by increasing the price of petrol for cars. Another is that they want to try and limit short haul flights. So that would be like a flight from Munich to Berlin or Munich to Hamburg or something. And these are things that they argue, well, we could replace this with uh, more efficient high speed trains. But those are very easy to characterize. And also, I mean, it is just a, a change of life for, uh, for Germans. But Erica, d- does it look like the Greens are, are doomed or do they still have a, a good shot in the upcoming elections? So this depends on a lot of things, but I would say that they should not be ruled out just because of these um, little stumbles. Right now, they're still really neck and neck with uh, Merkel's uh, Christian Democrats party. So it's not like that they have lost ground. It's more like the way we've been describing it is they sort of lost their sheen, the sort of glowing image that they seemed to have a month ago. But they're by no means down and out. And what I would say is that um, the real question is going to be how the CDU, the Christian Democrats, handle the next few months, because they're under a lot of pressure from their own corruption scandals over the past few months, mismanagement in the perspective of the German populace of the pandemic. So that's going to be the questions that we'll be looking at um, this summer and in the months ahead. Erica Solomon is our Berlin correspondent. One of the fastest growing economies in Africa is the tiny nation of Djibouti. The former French colony profits from its strategic location in the northeast edge of the continent. About a third of all daily shipping in the world passes by Djibouti, which is also a haven of stability in an unstable region. It's located between Somalia, Ethiopia, and Yemen. The FT's East and Central Africa correspondent, Andres Skipani, was there recently and joins me now. Andres... Djibouti's economy is expected to grow 7% this year. That's double the average for African countries. You know, what's, what's driving the economy there? Well, it's mainly trade, logistics, and infrastructure works. I mean, Djibouti's main asset is its location. This is a choke point where about a third of the world's maritime trade passes through. So as this is a route to, to and from uh, the Suez Canal, so both location and stability are key. But... You have to think like Djibouti received some $1.6 billion in the past decades in foreign direct investments and a big chunk, over $100 million or so, came from China. Yeah, so what, what is China's interest in Djibouti? What kind of presence does China have there? Well, I mean, aside from the, the heavy investments they, they made, I mean, China has also established its first overseas military base in Djibouti. It was opened in 2017 
And it, if you see it now, it looks like a fortress, I mean, by the, by the port. I mean, the idea originally, allegedly, was to protect Chinese cargo vessels from Somali pirates that used to ransack these waters. Many, they, these pirates have moved further into the Indian Ocean in recent years, and that's in big part because of heavy military presence from global powers, including China, in, in Djibouti. I mean, but the Americans also have a base in Djibouti, the French, the Japanese, the Italians, and, and again, I said, the, the Chinese. Well, that's that's quite an eclectic mix, and you, and you would think that all these powers would butt heads in a, in such a small space, but but is there tension between China and the Western nations who have a presence in Djibouti? I mean, it's just interesting how the relationship with China works because they seem to be friendly with one another on the outside, at least. But I heard some, let's say, there's, there's some friction between the Americans and the Chinese. I mean, the Western powers, with their presence, they acknowledge, most of them, they acknowledge to me that, that they have to get used to China being, being there. And indeed, also, they all admit, obviously, to snooping on, on each other. And the Djiboutian government, interestingly, seems to have been very efficient in, and cunning, let's say, at maintaining peace at home between all of these global powers. Andres, you spoke to the head of one of Djibouti's container ship ports, and, and he said the dream is for the country to be like a new Singapore. Um, tell me a little bit more about that goal. I would say that the determination to turn it into, let's say, the Singapore of Africa or the Panama of Africa is definitely there. I mean, both Singapore and Panama have something in common with Djibouti, which are location and stability. And Djibouti is also building infrastructure and, and, and experts and, 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 and people in the maritime trade business agree that the ports are quite efficient. And there was a tussle with, with a Dubai port operator called DP World, as they had a port that was seized and legal wranglings more or less continued. But you have to think that more than 40% of Djibouti's GDP hangs from transport and logistics. And again, that is due to location. So let's see what happens. Andres Scapani is the FT's East and Central Africa correspondent. Thanks, Andres. Thank you, Mark. It's good to talk to you. And before we go, North American movie theaters are reopening and starting to make money. But do you know who's really cashing in? A hedge fund that bought and then sold a big stake in AMC. The cinema chain has become a meme stock among amateur investors this year. They've made the stock super volatile, and last week its share price more than doubled. Then yesterday, AMC announced that it had raised more than $230 million by selling new shares to that hedge fund we mentioned, Mudrick Capital Management. AMC wants to use the funds to buy more theater chains. Mudrick, meanwhile, turned around and sold its entire position by the end of the day, netting a nice profit. Just how nice? Well, it wasn't clear, and Mudrick wouldn't comment on the trade. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian-developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.